Well, heading into what could very well be a somewhat uneventful National Signing Day, Oregon still has one big priority that I'd really like to see them land. Here we go. You are Locked On Ducks, your daily podcast on the Oregon Ducks, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Yes, it is that time once again for Locked on Ducks. I'm your host, Spencer McLaughlin. Thank you so much for making this your first listen or your first view of the day. Part of the Locked on Podcast Network, your number one source to stay up to date with the Ducks. Please continue to like, comment, subscribe wherever you listen to or watch this show, which today is brought to you by FanDuel Sportsbook, official sportsbook of Locked On. Make every moment more. Visit FanDuel.com slash Locked On today to get started. It's not going to be allowed. It's not going to be a crazy number of recruits that commit or don't commit on Wednesday. Really looking at three names. But Nicholas Harbor has been the number one guy in the eyes of Oregon fans and in the minds of Oregon fans really for the last couple of weeks. And I'm sure I've helped put him there for many of you. Something that I don't regret because I think he needs to be. Oregon's top priority. Now, there are two other guys to watch for on Wednesday. Roderick Pleasant, Deuce Robinson. I think both of those guys are worthwhile for the Ducks for different reasons. But if I could only have one of the three, I would definitely go with Harbor. I would actually put Robinson second, and I would put Roderick Pleasant third. Doesn't mean I wouldn't rather have him. But when you look at what Nicholas Harbor brings to the table, he's a guy who will probably end up playing tight end. That's what he wants to play. I think track would allow him to stay there. He's probably more likely, as John Garcia and I talked about last week on the show, to want to be Kyle Pitts than Isaiah Simmons. But that's the sort of body type that he has. And I don't care what position he'd play. I'd like to have him on the roster. But let's assume for a moment that what we've heard is correct, and he is wanting to play tight end. That is one of the biggest positions of need remaining right now on this Oregon roster. Because Cam McCormick left, Maliki Matavai left. Those are not small departures. And I don't know what led to all of that. Maybe it's an inclination that the Ducks would be able to get Harbor. They got him on campus. Lanning did it in home visit. He was at the men's basketball game. Shout out to men's basketball, by the way, for playing a great game. It was a good crowd as well. Harbor was in the student section. All of that good jazz. But that tight end room going into 2023 is frankly a little bit light. It's it's a little bit light. If you've been listening to me for a while, you know, I'm a big Terrence Ferguson fan. Always have been, always will be. I think he rewarded my faith in him going into the season and could be poised for even an even bigger jump in 2023, depending on how Will Stein wants to incorporate the tight ends into the offense. But I, I think his physical traits, his hands, his, his football IQ is all really, really good. But we saw more than just Terrence Ferguson, utilized in 2022. Matavau was out there frequently. McCormick was out there 
frequently. All three of them. Heck, when you put Patrick Herbert in the mix, who's still there, he's the other holdover along with, with Tferg from last year's team. All four of them found the end zone in meaningful games, were playing meaningful snaps, and were really important players in certain situations of the offense. So when I look at the room going into next year, it's Terrence Ferguson, it's Patrick Herbert, who I think is solid, but Harbor physically is more gifted probably than either of them. I think if he did commit to Oregon, he'd project maybe as the number two tight end in 2023, which I don't think is a bad thing because I think Herbert's a solid player. He's dealt with a couple of injuries during his time in Oregon, but he's still a good athlete. He's a solid blocker as well. Not great, but solid from, from what I've been able to see. I think Harbor would boost that room tremendously. Tremendously. And it, and, and if and if Oregon pulls a rabbit out of the hat here with Deuce Robinson, who's a five-star tight end, great. That, that that's that's awesome that doesn't seem as likely so i feel like on the recruiting front if i'm dan lanning if i'm drew Maringer, the tight ends coach if i'm will stein the offensive coordinator or anybody else who's involved i think that's really the only guy that i would like oregon to get to commit where, where i'd say man i would really like it and and deuce robinson would be just fine as well not a lot of five-star tight ends out there now, the prospect of adding Kenyon Sadiq, who's a pretty highly rated four-star recruit, I think he's one of the highest overall recruits in Oregon's 2023 class right now. I factor him into the depth chart conversation, but a couple things. Number one, you don't know what you're going to get from a true freshman, even though I think tight ends can make the jump from high school to college pretty easily. But number two, we lost two guys, and we're only adding one who were regular key contributors, even if it's just in that 14J package. And that group didn't have a major injury this year. And by the way, having four regular bodies there, I think is a component of that. You didn't have guys who had to go out there and play 80 to 90% of the snaps at tight end, a very physical position where you get a lot of hits, you can get rolled up on, you know, in those big scrums running the ball up the middle and whatnot. A lot of different things can happen. I would like to have, at the very least, three bodies that I feel highly confident in, in terms of their capabilities, to play tight end and contribute without a drop-off from any of the other guys going into 2023. And right now, we've got two, maybe three. But I, I liked what that position group had going forward a year ago, and I think that's why Harbor needs to be priority number one. Roderick Pleasant looks like he's going to be going to USC. Never say never. We've seen crazy things happen on national signing days before. I don't think I need to mention the name Peyton Bowen again, but we all know anything can really happen there. Maybe Oregon's got, you know, another trick up their sleeve or something that's kind of in the wings that we haven't really heard a lot about and they're going to flip somebody. You never know. You, you really, really never know. But I think for Pleasant... You know, canceling the visit. He, he's an intriguing prospect, a little bit smaller, but a lot of speed, a lot, a lot of speed, which at times I think the secondary was lacking a year ago, but is something that you just really always want to have regardless. I think you just have so many bodies in that defensive back room that, you know, I'm never going to say no to a talented kid committing to Oregon. 
no matter the position group, no matter the year, no matter any factor. You can never have too much talent. There is literally no such thing. But if we're talking priorities here, I think the defensive back room has got a lot of guys in it going forward. I mean, I see the defensive back picture crystallizing day by day for 2023. I even know what it might look like in 2024. You've got Cole Martin in this class. You've got Dalen Austin, the LSU or the former LSU commit that Oregon flipped when um, when Caleb Presley flipped to Washington. And then Dante Manning, I think, has still got uh, eligibility after this year. You just have a lot of other names in that defensive backfield that I, I feel like there's more of a set long-term plan at this point in time than at tight end, which is why I think Harbor and then Robinson and then Pleasant should be the priority uh, in that order. Coaches move around a lot nowadays in college football. And one of you asked an intriguing question about that, which I will most definitely answer after I tell you about FanDuel, which is, of course, our new sports betting partner here at Locked On, which we're stoked about because they're the number one sports book in America. If you're new to FanDuel, that's even better. They have so many great features that make betting on sports fun and easy. Download FanDuel now so you can bet Super Bowl 57 between the Chiefs and the Eagles with a no-sweat first bet, you'll get up to $3,000 back in bonus bets if your first bet doesn't win. FanDuel lets you bet on everything from the money line to point spreads to who will score a touchdown. You can get it all. The FanDuel Sportsbook app is safe, secure, and super easy to use. Can confirm. So join FanDuel today at FanDuel.com slash LockedOn to claim your no-sweat first bet on Super Bowl 57 between the Chiefs and the Eagles. That's FanDuel.com slash LockedOn. Make every moment more with FanDuel, official sportsbook partner of the NFL. All right, let's dive into a little bit of mailbag here, which any of you can be a part of via the YouTube comments or Twitter at smalls underscore 55 or at locked on ducks are the handles DMs wide open, beginning a bunch of great questions, continuing to run through them here on the show. GWG5640, who's got a, an avatar on YouTube, which is, I believe, a picture of Marcus in the Civil War in 2014, his Heisman year. I think that's right. Anyway, call it me... Call it or me old school, where a coach or staff person comes into the program by the athletic director and moves up from quote unquote within, just as Chip did and as Helfrich did. Same, I believe, for Mike Bellotti. Bring in young coaches to a Power Five program, tells me they're just putting this on their resume so they can go elsewhere and say, I worked under Dan Lanning at Oregon. I would much prefer a system in which they invest their time to the program and move up to an OC position or DC or whatever position is open. Coming from within shows they know the program like the back of their hands. I love the spelling, by the way. He's got it down, P-R-O-G-R-U-M, program podcast here. Uh, shows they know the program like the back of their hands. And it just looks bad when you have a new OC or DC every year, plus a new hire has to learn things from the ground up. Continuity is lost and errors are a factor. This is a very interesting question. And Oregon is not a stranger to coaching turnover. Willie Tiger was one and done. 
Cristobal, four years, goes to Miami. How many coaches and coordinators left in the meantime? Now, let's start with the coordinators losing and having a revolving door there. As I record this show, the University of Alabama is without an offensive coordinator and defensive coordinator, and yet they have the top recruiting class in 2023, and they just won 11 games, including blowing out the Big 12 champs in Kansas State in the Sugar Bowl. The head coach is the most important position. I know that that sounds very obvious, but what you have to remember is, number one, if other schools want your coordinators, it means you're a pretty sizable brand or you're having an outstanding year. Kenny Dillingham to Arizona State, Chris Hampton from Tulane, not a big brand, had an outstanding year. He comes over to Oregon this offseason. Number two, if your coordinators are having a lot of success, it's just the way the world works. Everyone, not everyone, but a lot of people want to be a head coach. It's a lot more responsibility. It's a lot more work. But you also have more money. You get to run a team and a program the way that you want to. It's a very unique opportunity. And the idea that not having the same OC and DC every year isn't a good look, don't agree with that at all. Because it comes back to the head coach. If we have made the right hire in Dan Lanning, coordinators coming and going is not going to be a problem. It may be something we have to deal with consistently and address and talk about here on the show, but it's not going to be a problem. Nick Saban has had, I don't know how many different offensive coordinators for all of his national championships, but there have been more than one. Kirby Smart, great head coach. We all see that, right? Had uh, one coordinator for last year, our boy Dan Lanning, and a different defensive coordinator for his team this year. And his offensive coordinator, Todd Munkin, probably won't be there in the next couple of years because he might get a head coaching gig. We'll see if he's interested. But the idea that we should be promoting from within because it's guys who are brought in to understand what Oregon is all about and understanding the system and being comfortable and all that, all that sort of stuff, even with one of the examples that you alluded to in your question, Chip Kelly was brought in from the outside. He was an OC for a couple of years. He was promoted from within. He left after four years too. Chip Kelly and Mario Cristobal were the head coach of Oregon for the same amount of time. So should you have... I, I don't know what your solution would be necessarily. I don't mean to come off as as hostile, but... I don't know what your solution is to Chip Kelly deciding, yeah, I'm going to go to the NFL because that's where my career interests lie. There's too many, there are too many coaches. There are too many factors at play to guarantee that any coach will stay for a long, long time. But the best program in the country, the greatest dynasty in the history of the sport, Nick Saban's Alabama Crimson Tide have had a bevy of different coordinators. They've come and gone. They've gotten head coaching opportunities. They've gone elsewhere. I mean, Bill O'Brien left to be the OC of the Patriots. Speaking of which, have not heard anything on the Adrian Clem front at this point in time, which is encouraging, at least for the Ducks. 
He also got rid of Pete Golding as DC, who I believe is now going to Ole Miss. But if you build a winning culture and your head coach knows what he is doing, knows how to make hires, knows how to build connections to find other really good talented coordinators, then I'm not concerned about OCs and DCs coming and going. I think we all agree that at this point in time, Tosh Lupoy's seat is at the very least warm. I don't think it's hot. I don't even know if it's warm. We'll call it lukewarm with this Chris Hampton introduction. But if the defense struggles mightily again and Tosh ends up moving on after a couple years, that would be continuous. That'd be the second straight year that Oregon has to replace one of its two major coordinators. Is that a problem? Is that a bad thing? Or is it just kind of the way of the world? Yeah, you'd like to be able to keep the Kenny Dillinghams of the world, but when you can go out and find another guy like Will Stein, who may very well want to be a head coach one day. But guess what? He can't do that, finding a head coaching gig, if he doesn't have a wild amount of success at Oregon. He can't come in and average 28, 30 points a game and then go get a legitimate head coaching job. And by the way, that kind of happened, although the points per game I think were a little bit higher, but I think we all agree a little bit skewed. When Marcus Arroyo was the OC, he went to go take the UNLV job. Was that a bad thing? Or did anybody else feel what I felt, which was Joe Moorhead is a smarter situational offensive coordinator and more clever and has better schemes than Marcus Arroyo did? So I, I think this notion, totally understand where you're coming from, that, that it can be annoying. You want to have people who understand it. You want to have, at the end of the day, people who understand football. That's what matters the most. I mean, Chip Kelly, when he became the head coach, understood what Oregon was about, for sure. But it's not like he had been there for a decade or more. He was only with Oregon as a coach in some capacity for six years. But that's the greatest, at least in my life at this point in time, that's the greatest stretch of Oregon football we've had to date. But it was with a guy who was an outsider, was not with Oregon for very long, but knew football, knew the schemes, knew the X's and O's, was able to recruit well enough with the staff that he had, made good hires. And part of being a head coach now more than it used to be is being able to make good hires on more than one occasion. And Lanning made, I think, a good hire on the recruiting front with Tosh Lupoy, and we'll see if you know the play calling can improve. We'll also see what Chris Hampton brings to the table. I think he made a great hire in Kenny Dillingham, and now we'll see what Will Stein is. But that's part of being a head coach. Part of how you evaluate your head coach is what sorts of hires does he make? That didn't used to be a major part of the consideration for how you would view a head coach in his job performance, but now it is. It, it, it is more prevalent now than it used to be. And to me, that's okay. Because at the end of the day, I want people who are going to be able to perform at a level that would make them attractive to a Mountain West or Pac-12 school. Think about this, and some of you may mentally crucify me for bringing this up, but it's it's a really good comparison. When Washington went to the college football playoff, do you know who their coordinators were? Jonathan Smith, 
not a Washington guy, just a really good football guy, and Justin Wilcox. That's who was on Chris Peterson's staff. And Chris Peterson, as much as any coach, is a CEO head coach. And he did a really good job of that. And he made really good hires. And those weren't quote unquote, quote unquote, men of Washington. They weren't Huskies through and through, exemplified by the fact that they now have Pac-12 head coaching opportunities elsewhere. But guess what? They brought those guys in because they felt they were the most qualified for the position. So I'm not worried about coordinators coming and going or needing to promote from within because I think what you saw in the Holiday Bowl was Drew Merringer was competent enough for a game as a play caller, but is that how the offense should really look? Was it as good as it could have been in that game? No, it, it wasn't, but that would have been your top option to promote from within, and I'm glad they went out and made an outside hire. So. Great question, though. I, I think it's a really, really fascinating thought. Totally understand where you're coming from. I just see the issue uh, uh, another way. Final note, final couple of notes here on the show. Let's start with the hashtag ProDucks. Our boy Justin Herbert has got a new offensive coordinator. His name is Kellen Moore. I think it's a fine hire. I think he could have been worse. I would have rather Sean Payton just been the head coach and he be calling the plays. I, I, I think Kellen Moore can be an upgrade from Joe Lombardi, who loves calling the spacing play in NCAA football or Madden. I mean, that is, whew, boy, third and five. We're calling spacing halfback flair. Um, <laughs> literally every time. That's, uh, that's, what he, that's what he was kind of going for there. So I, I think that's an upgrade for Herbert, which is nice to see. I, I'm not blown away by it either. I mean, they put up 30 points in their playoff game and lost. So let's make adjustments on the other side of the ball. Speaking of adjustments, Dana Altman has made a couple lately that are uh, curious, yet seemingly effective. We'll see how it goes this week against the Arizona schools. But Khalil Ware, who had a lot of hype coming into this year, has now been struggling to regularly see the floor. And Nate Biddle's kind of taken his minutes. And Nate Biddle's been playing very well. And Ware hasn't found his shot in his offensive game. His defense and rebounding, I, I think, has been there. But Biddle's offensive game is more refined. I think you'd expect that from a guy who's uh, a sophomore or a junior compared to a true freshman. But that change, along with, you know, Biddle, I think, started the last game uh, against Utah. And then Folly Dante came off the bench. Curious lineup moves, but you know what? After the, I think it was the Arizona State game, Dana Altman said he just needed to be able to make changes, clear his head, and just kind of have a reset there. It's working so far. We'll see what happens on Thursday. I am going to be anxiously watching that game against Arizona down in Tucson. They pull that one out, that would give me a lot of hope. If they don't, they need to beat ASU, and they can still kind of be in that that conversation. But the other thing, too, about the Ducks that is now becoming more and more clear as the games go on, we were really missing Jermaine Kuznard in the early going. He's really good. He is really, really good. He's a three-level scorer. He's a ball handler to take pressure off Will Richardson. 
I think he's solid defensively. There are a lot of things about his game that add a number of really good elements to this Ducks team. If he keeps playing at a high level and can kind of be the number one or the primary ball handler along with Will Richardson, their 1A, 1B, I think it's a much, much better situation for the Ducks. Appreciate everyone listening. Talk to you tomorrow on National Signing Day. Have a wonderful rest of your day, and go Ducks.